Previously on Transformers University, we took a two-part look back at the 1986 film Transformers the Movie, and now we're going to dive a little bit deeper as we talk with filmmaker, producer, restaurateur, and world-class nerd extraordinaire J.C. Reifenberg right now on Transformers University. Hello, my friend, and welcome to episode 52 of Transformers University. I am your host, Anthony Bricali, owner, operator, madman behind TFU.info, the Toy Archive, the social media, the YouTube channel, and this podcast and more. And today, oh man, do we have an episode for you. If you liked the last two episodes, if you liked our look back on Transformers the movie from 1986, you're going to love this conversation some of you may know J.C. Reifenberg's work. Uh, I know J.C. Reifenberg from work. Uh, not presently, but uh, J.C. and I used to work together uh, at our old gig for Major League Baseball and MLB.com. Um, I actually used to work for J.C. for a couple of seasons, and then J.C. moved out to L.A., and he was our freelance camera guy, and he worked for me for about a season and a half <laughs> as my L.A. guy. Um, there is not... Uh, more that could be said about JC's work ethic and knowledge of film. He is one of the hardest working people I've ever met uh, to give you a story of uh, one of the times we had, about a year after we had started working together, was started the 2006 baseball season. And at MLB in those days, uh, budgets didn't kick in until April 1st. So that means if you were doing some sort of computer upgrade or whatever, your, your group didn't have the money until April 1st. Now, if you're familiar with baseball, baseball season starts plus or minus a few days around April 1st. And uh, the season actually, 2006 season kicked off officially, I think, on April 1st or March 31st. And we were switching over from PCs to Macs uh, for all of our video processing. And so on April 1st, the IT gang was working like crazy to get everything working, but nothing worked properly and nothing worked quickly. So uh, it was taking us hours to process video. And to give you an idea of the technology at the time, we were breaking ground as a group, as a, as a company, by being able to send baseball highlights to people's cell phones in under two minutes. Uh, so that should give you an idea of the technology that was cutting edge at the time. Nonetheless, there were a handful of us, uh, myself and JC and two other people, that worked crazy hours those two weeks. And um, it is the biggest uh, hourly paycheck I have ever made uh, in my life in terms of hours. Uh, I had worked, and I was, I was not a full-time employer, I was a freelancer. Uh, I had worked in those two weeks 80, 80 hours, you know, your normal full-time gig of regular pay and 81 and a quarter hours of overtime pay in those two weeks. So I had essentially worked an entire month plus in those two weeks. And there was only, I think, one, maybe two other people that worked more hours than I did. And one of those people was J.C. Reifenberg. Now, that's J.C.'s work ethic. You may know J.C.'s work. J.C. is a... Uh, uh, a phenomenal uh, cameraman, uh, cinematographer. He is, um, you may know him from Absolute Value Pictures, which is a production company owned by Kevin Smith. You may know him from various Kevin Smith projects. Uh, he also produced uh, a 
documentary called Return of Return of the Jedi and uh, a neat little film called Hughes the Force where it's a, a Star Wars fan film kind of told in the style of a John Hughes picture. Uh, you may also know his restaurant, uh, the Scum and Villainy Cantina in Hollywood, California. It is the home of the podcast Fat Man Beyond, formerly Fat Man on Batman. And uh, JC is the producer of that show as well. And you will hear him on that show. Uh, they'll refer to him passing around the mic, getting audience questions. So if you ever attend Fat Man Beyond, say hi to JC. Tell him you heard him on this podcast. And uh, maybe he'll get you, let you get a question in uh, to the show live. So, like I said in the previous episode, I love when my friends go on to do big things. I love when my friends and my former coworkers succeed and go on to bigger things. Um, and so it always makes me happy when I hear um, JC being mentioned on, on a show or, or seeing his name pop up somewhere in my feed. And so I felt like he was the perfect person to tap for this conversation. Now, uh, you may have heard me on uh, another former coworker of both of ours, uh, Seth Everett, uh, his podcast, Hall of Justice. And JC has been on there as their uh, Star Wars correspondent and uh, is Star Wars insider, as Seth would say. And um, they broke down The Last Jedi. And uh, JC really did put that film in a, uh, a space for me where I, I enjoyed it. And then but I couldn't really see what was wrong with it. Um, he certainly uh, pointed out uh, the things that he felt was wrong with it in a very intellectual, smart, and story-driven way. So, I felt JC was perfect for this conversation about Transformers the movie. And when I reached out to him, I never realized how big of a fan of this film he was. So, just in some direct messages back and forth between me and him, I realized this was more than just having him as a clip in the previous two episodes, I really wanted to sit down with JC and um, pick his brain on this film. And we did. And even more, we talked a little bit about uh, the Bumblebee film from last year. Uh, we touched slightly on Netflix's Voltron. And uh, so if you're worried about spoilers for Bumblebee, uh, I would stop here. Uh, we don't really get into spoiler territory with Voltron. Um, definitely don't get into anything story specific. So uh, no worries there. And of course, if you haven't seen Transformers, the movie from 1986, why are you listening to this show right now? Stop it, pause it, and go watch the damn film. So with that said, here is my conversation with J.C. Reifenberg. Okay, cool. I love, God, I love Transformers. So, <laughs> um, so we, can, we can talk. Um, we, we'll, we'll talk. This will be fun. I've never cool. done a Transformers thing either, so... I'm super excited about that. I get to talk about, you know. Anyway, all right, let's just jump into it. So I don't. All right, jump. No, so start with me. You know, I know you mentioned when we were talking on Twitter, like, um, you got to, you got tell me your first experience with Transformers the movie. Well, I mean, I'd like to introduce myself with the universal greeting and say, Ba Week Grana Week Minibon to everybody who listens to your show. The, first time I saw Transformers the movie was actually a huge buildup. Um, I was five years old in 1986 and I had just heard about Transformers the movie and this was pre-internet. This was like kids at school who got to go see it or like my next door neighbor who was six years older than me who like got to go see it in the movie theater and just could not shut up about it. And so the hype in a pre-internet world was insane for little six-year-old JC. 
And um, it was, I think, my seventh birthday. And I, I literally still remember it. I had this giant box. And uh, it was from my brother. And I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be Trypticon. I cannot wait. Um, and I opened it up, and there was a smaller box wrapped up inside the bigger box, like a package within a package. And I never, uh, like, I'd never seen that before. I thought that was so cool. And then I opened, like, I ripped the paper off, and it was the old white box of Transformers the movie, like the original VHS where uh, with the artwork with Ultra Magnus with the, the you know, like I think he's pointing his gun kind of towards the camera and Unicron's up at the top kind of looming over them. And I freaked out. I freaked out. I freaked out in a way that I haven't even done for Star Wars, uh, like when the special editions came out or the new movies. Um, it was like unbridled exuberance. And the moment my family left, I just wanted to rip through packages. And I did end up getting Trypticon that birthday. Um, I just wanted to rip through all the packages as fast as I could so that my brother and I could go and sit in my mom's bed because we only had one VCR in the house and it was in her room uh, and just watch Transformers the movie to see what happened. Um, and we had already seen, this is after kind of the post movie. So like we knew who Rodimus Prime was and I already had a Galvatron toy. So like I was filling in the backstory on these toys that I already had. Uh, yeah, God, it makes me so happy to think about it. So, so did the movie live up to your expectations? Uh, the movie did live up to my expectations and it's, Still is a movie that I probably watch three or four times a year. And, and since then have tried to collect all the different versions. So like the one where Spike swears, like I had to get that one. And then like the recolor timed version, that's a little bit wider for the 20th anniversary. Like I had to get that one. And then there was another version where like, Oh, I can't even remember. But like, probably the, I would the, go to the, Oh, I was gonna say, there's the UK version with the Star Wars like scroll at the front, that, and then and there was the a one. blue gray. Yes, yes, I got that one, and then um, and, and I was going to like Wizard World Chicago to try to find these things. Like, I was ravenous about that movie, and I still, literally to this day, watch it probably three or four times a year. It's one of my like go to have the movie on in the background. Um, I just think it's so, it's like such a well-told classic tale of, uh, of succession and leadership. You want to, you want to go a little deeper into that? Yeah. I mean, like, so I'm a filmmaker and I've studied story and film and watched a lot of war movies. Um, and that's what this is. I mean, it's Transformers, so it's heightened and a little over the top and ridiculous. But this is a Transformers the movie is a war movie. It is a movie about an old general who is uh, who lays his life on the line as a demonstration to 
all of the people under him about like who you can be at your best and who you need to be to come out on top at the end of the day. And uh, <clears throat> um, watching Ultra Magnets fail, you know, watching kind of the second in line to take the spot fail and, and kind of this underdog rogue kid step up to the plate, it's almost like, uh, uh, like King Arthur in a way. You know, um, and it, I, I think there are, they really tapped into kind of uh, a human story or a, kind of a mythic succession story um, in a way that the Michael Bay movies haven't, didn't even consider. You know, I don't see Transformers the movie, the cartoon, as a popcorn movie or as a cartoon. Like, I think it's, I mean, even as a kid, like, it's pretty adult. Uh, one of my best friends, who's a few years older than me, remembers seeing it in the theater. And when Optimus Prime dies, he, he, he was beside himself. He wanted to leave. He didn't even want to see the rest of the movie. Um, that is not something that happens in the, in, in the world of kids' TV today. You know, it just doesn't happen. Or then, um, I mean, that's probably, you know, you think back to the 80s, that didn't happen, you know, often, or even the idea of a, a show or a line where, you know, we took, we gave you all your favorite characters that you knew, and we got rid of them all. And here's a whole new set, we're, we're starting over, here's the reboot right now. Yeah, and you know, what's funny is like, if you watch like, you know, your, your, uh, your show, the toys that made us, um, in like a very... 2018, 2019 snarky way, everybody's like, oh, well, they did that to sell more toys, um, which is probably true. But to me, uh, it, it's completely justified within the story. Like they didn't, they didn't just say, hey, Optimus Prime's de dead, buy all these new toys. They justified it. They, they, uh, they gave an emotional attachment to the characters on why you should care about Rodimus Prime, why he is the right guy to succeed Optimus. Like they, uh, they justified any sort of capitalistic intent with a, a story and a, a, a depth to the new characters that you can't help but fall in love with Rodimus Prime. You can't help but want to cheer when you know he stands up to Galvatron and opens the Matrix at the end. Like it's oh, it drives me crazy. Like I I love that movie so much to the point that I've actually like in my head said to myself like if I ever make like a live action war movie, I would use the kind of uh, plot beats of Transformers the movie because I think it's perfect. Like, there's yeah. no way you can't become attached to those characters. No, you're absolutely right. You know, I've never heard, I don't think I've ever heard anyone reference Transformers the movie in terms of being a war movie. I've heard it in terms of being an animated feature and a sci-fi movie. And, and it's a lot of ways a, um, something that took a lot of story beats from Star Wars. 
but I've never heard it referenced as a straight up war movie. And I, I'm just like, my mind's blown right now because um, I had never kind of looked at it through that lens. Um, you know, one of the things you mentioned, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, if you replace Transformers, like Decepticons with uh, North Korea, and you said it, I mean, you'd have to set it a little <laughs> bit further than the year 2005 now. But like, let's say the year 2050, right? Uh, and you replace the Decepticons with North Korea um, or, you know, Russia has almost like a red sun type situation where Russia has taken over the world and, uh, and you've, got, you've got this rebellion of people who used to be a world superpower and our, our hero whoever are, you know, the John Connor of the United States sacrifices himself. And you have this amazing story of this kid who, if I were making the movie, I'd give him a last name like Lincoln or Kennedy, right? Stepping up to lead, uh, like kind of the changing point in that war. Like it's, it's, it's like Academy Award winning uh, plot point. And I know that sounds, I, I sound ridiculous saying that, but like the basic story of that is, is so humanistic um, and, and just is the perfect story for war. It, it's, uh, I'm not even making any sense <laughs> because I'm so, so invested in that movie. You know, it's funny. Do you feel, you know, sometimes I see it, uh, especially after seeing, uh, did you see Bumblebee, by the way? I did see Bumblebee. Okay. After seeing it, I, would, I thought it was um, really well done. And I think if you put nostalgia aside, if you put your love for the film aside, if you can do that, I feel like I, I've said, I think Bumblebee might be the better film. Um, but I also feel like people get very clouded with that, that love for this film because it's had, you know, 30 years to kind of... Um, you know, gestate and inside of people and, and, and grow. Um, do you feel there can ever be a Transformers movie as good as this one? Uh, I think so. I mean, it's not like the plot of the movie isn't uh, completely new like it is in the Matrix, right? When you saw the Matrix, you were just like, oh my God, I don't even know what I'm watching. This is incredible. I've never seen anything like this. Where like, you could probably go through history and pick out quite a few movies that follow the plot of Transformers, the movie. So I think if you did, um, I think there would be a way to do it. Uh, I think if you enjoyed the first five minutes of Bumblebee, which is like pure Cybertronian nostalgia, amazingness, um, I think that they could probably do it. Uh, I think the hard part would be you would have to not speak down to the kids. You'd have to somehow capture a generation of kids through, uh, like if you didn't want to just make it a nostalgia bomb for people like you and me who are just like, I saw RC, I saw Braun, I saw, oh my God, like, ah, the, the star screen transforms into the Cybertronian version. This is amazing. If you didn't, if you weren't going for that, you would have to find uh, a, the new group of kids who don't 
have that emotional attachment necessarily to those character designs and build basically just a really compelling story. Like take one of these classic, classic mythical stories, you know, and build your movie around that and hit the like seven-year-olds who, uh, who grew up loving Transformers Prime or, you know, Beast Wars is like my version of new Transformers, even though it's 25 years old. Um, but hit that. Um, and I think you probably could, with time, it will age very well. I don't know if Bumblebee will age the same way as uh, as the animated movie. I think... You know, Bumblebee was Transformers number six or seven, right? Isn't that six if you don't how count. many of those have yeah. been done? That would have been the sixth after the sixth live action one, seven if you count the original, uh, you know, animated film. Yeah. Okay. So it, it's number six. Now, to be honest, I watched the first one and couldn't stand it. I watched the second one and eh, and I haven't watched any of them since. I went out to see Bumblebee because it looked like it had a real story. Like I couldn't tell you in the first Michael Bay Transformers, like there's like the blonde girl who's part of something, but she doesn't really need to be in the movie. And then they have like the comic relief is like John Leguizamo or somebody. I'm like, what are you doing in the movie? Like it's so convoluted and the plot is so like overdone. It doesn't need to be, it's like all the new Terminator movies also, where it's just like, look, you have machines versus man. The machines are winning. Tell the story about how man overcomes the machine. That's as easy as it needs to be. And like, it's so con- gets so convoluted. Bumblebee, I think, really succeeded in that it was a story about a robot without a family and a young girl who felt like she had lost her family. And it was about their connection. And, like, had Bumblebee been the first Transformers movie, I think, one, it probably would have done a lot better, even without the nostalgia bomb. And I think if you continued to build off of that, where you're telling a a human story that involves robots, right? Like something like Wally did. I think that those, I, I think it, I think that could be huge. And I think you could reignite transformers in a completely new way i don't know if you're going to be able to get over the all the other stuff <laughs> yeah i think the bumblebee <laughs> movie came point. the bumblebee movie came a little late for for what it was um mm-hmm. and they actually reworked. i was reading up on it uh, a few weeks ago they reworked a lot of stuff so like that cybertron scene at the beginning and a lot of things uh mixed in there those are all like uh post first screening add-ins um there was a whole world oh, really? War II storyline that uh got cut uh th- they went from being like somehow in the original universe to being uh a very gray area reboot of the michael bay films um mm-hmm. but you know you made one point there about about not talking down to the kids and i don't think transform the original 86 movie does that which is one thing that drives me nuts about like um the current state of transformers uh visual media so like tv and film is mm-hmm. the idea that bumblebee can't talk and i feel like that is a way they talk down to kids in, in a way like i want to hear Bumblebee yeah. talk 
because he's the representation for the kid and the kid has no voice, mm -hmm. then you're, you're, you're in essence talking down to them. Oh, that's really smart. I never even thought about that, but you are, you're, you're muting the voice of the child in the show. Yeah. Which is crazy. And then as soon as you do that, the child doesn't identify as strongly with the characters on screen and they're going to go play Fortnite. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, I want to bring it back a little bit here. You know, have you ever noticed the parallels? I mean, there's huge parallels to Star Wars. I was just wondering if, if you've ever, you know, felt, do you feel it's, it's, there's a bit of homage here or is it a bit over too much? You know, there, there, I can count four things, four or five things right off the top of my head that are basically directly pulled from Star Wars and Transformers the movie. You know, what's funny is I, I fell in love with Transformers before I fell in love with Star Wars. So in my head, I may have even seen, I probably didn't see that movie before Star Wars. I know I didn't, but that movie, I can remember the first time I watched that movie and I can't really remember the first time I saw Star Wars. Um, I, so I never built those connections. Like, like I never, I like honestly, you're like I got four things that are the Transformers knocked off, and outside of like the opening crawl that you mentioned in the UK version, like I'd like to hear what you have to say because that's I would never associate the two things. Okay, well, so Unicron being the first, you know, a giant planet-sized thing that destroys other planets. Um, there's uh, RCE's got the the buns on her ears, like like. Princess Leia. Uh, there's a training droid uh, with uh, fighting with uh, Hot Rod in the scene where they're escaping, um, and you know the mate, the notion of the Matrix versus the notion of the Force, like you know using the Force at the end versus using the power of the Matrix at the end. They're they're all kind of they're they're very very similar themes. Um, okay, so this is very weird. I'm going to defend Transformers the movie against Ford. <laughs> all right. Um, as it'll be the only time this ever happens. Uh, the training remote is a gimmick. I don't really think that you can say, like, yeah, that's a knockoff. But, like, it's a knockoff in such an inconsequential way, right? In Star Wars, the training remote is used to uh, as, a as a device to um, get you into the concept of the Force, right? It's a, it's a device that um, to, sh to, to give Obi-Wan Kenobi a reason to talk to Luke about the Force and then, you know, show that, oh, Luke has this magical power. In Transformers the movie, Hot Rod fighting that training remote has nothing to do with anything. It's background noise to show he's distracted before, like, the Galvatron ship shows up, right? So right. like it's it it's used in a completely different way, completely different. Like in Transformers the movie, it may be like a little wink to Star Wars, but it does. It, like, there's no critical information that comes from that scene. Where in Star Wars, it's the exact opposite. Um, Unicron is sentient. The Death Star is run by men. So Unicron makes his own decisions. Cannot be reasoned with. Um, so I have a, I mean, yeah, it's a planet that destroys a planet, but I don't necessarily feel like that's a, oh, you know what we should do? 
to me, I always saw Unicron as like, who's the biggest robot? Uh, Metroplex, you know, who, uh, or Superion, right? Or Devastator. Like, let's make a, let's make a thing that's bigger than Devastator. Well, what would that be? Oh, let's make him a planet that destroys planets, you know? Um, similar to the way they did Fortress Maximus at the end of the U.S. run, where it's just like, just make it bigger. Um, what were the other two? Oh, the concept of the Matrix versus the Force. I don't know. Again, like, those are kind of mythic archetypes. And in Star Wars, it's you're it's it's pre midichlorians. It's just this thing that's generated by life. Whereas the Matrix gains its power from the goodness of the Autobots that came before, right? So again, it's it's a it's a token device. It would it, it would be more similar to me as if Obi as the Schwartz in Spaceballs, right? Because it's like, Lone Star, use this ring, you know, and that gives you the Schwartz. And it's like, that to me would be more analogous to the Matrix of Leadership than than necessarily the Force. Um, so I don't know. Maybe I'm just biased because I'm, I'm, I, you know, I have such a strong childhood attachment to that movie. But, yeah, I don't really see it. <laughs> no, you might, be, you might be the anti-bias here because you defended... Transformers film over Star Wars <laughs> as someone who owns an intergalactic space cantina. Yeah. And, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, when you, when you delve into kind of those mythic archetypes um, and storylines, there's, there's not a lot that, I mean, everything kind of pulls from the same stuff, right? It's how you reskin it. Mm-hmm. You know, almost any first person shooter you play, you're playing Doom, you know, uh, or Duke Nukem 3, or not Duke Nukem, uh, Wolfenstein, right? Everything's kind of a derivative of that. It's just like, instead of demons, let's make it Nazis. Instead of Nazis, let's make it this. So, I don't know. I, I don't... I think people are really... Uh, I, I don't think there's very many original ideas out there. I think everything's kind of a derivative of something else. And the the trick is how do you reskin it? How do you update it? How do you make it relevant for today in a way that uh, it wasn't like in a way that people wouldn't uh, identify with the same way. And I'll give you a perfect example, which is going to make everybody groan, but uh, Jar Jar Binks in episode one is the intent of that. And they never came out and said it, which I think they should have was, he was meant to be a silent film, a representation and homage to silent film. So if you're familiar with Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin, a lot of Jar Jar's physical comedy is basically almost lifted shot for shot from old Buster Keaton movies. Like the example I'll give you is when he is hanging on the Trade Federation battle tank, that is Buster Keaton hanging on the clock which then they do an homage to in Back to the Future as well, right? Is, uh, is Doc Brown hanging on the clock. And you know it's an homage in Back to the Future because at the beginning of the movie, he has a, like a cuckoo clock that has Buster Keaton hanging on it. So these ideas are, 
reskinned, recycled, reused over and over and over again. And the reason they do that is because it's familiar. It's a language that has been in our society for so long that you instantly understand it without having to go into an in-depth explanation. And, and to bring it full circle, um, <laughs> the, uh, to, to the Back to the Future reference, um, the voice of Kranix, the alien that, that gets caught by the yes. Quintessence, is Lou, the diner owner in Back to the Future. <laughs> nice. Hey, can we talk about how amazing the cast is? So yeah, Leno, let's talk about the cast because I actually just posted, and I'll, I'll say in the video, I just did a Meet the Cast episode of, of the podcast where we kind of broke down all the cast people and other things they've been in, uh, kind of putting faces to the names uh, of everyone that was in the movie. So, and you find like random things like David Mendenhall, who was uh, the voice of Daniel. Um, he was, you know, oh Sylvester Stallone's kid in Over the Top. And then like he uh -huh. was he, uh, in, in an episode of Different Strokes, uh, he was, uh, it was the episode that had Nancy Reagan telling kids don't do drugs. He was the drug dealer in the schoolyard. <laughs> oh my God, that's hilarious. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I didn't even know that. But just, if you look at the opening credits and you start with Leonard Nimoy, like, what? That's insane to play Galvatron. Uh, and here's the other crazy thing that they did is they let, like, and I know it would be blasphemous to do it today, but back then they like, Peter Cullen did Optimus Prime, you know? Um, so it wasn't like they, they like took iconic names and actors and put them with the new characters, but they let the old characters be Casey Kasem or whoever. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> then, you know, John Mishita is Blur, the Micro Machines guy. Like, of course, of course, how could you not? Um, but the big one, and the one I always talk about is Orson Welles. That was his last acting role, I believe. Uh, you're correct. And that is something I use for trivia all the time with my nerdy film friends. Is I'm like, what was Orson Welles' last role? And everybody's like, oh, it was something, something from the 70s. I was like, no, it's Transformers the movie. Um, which is like this incredible... Uh, and now, like, look, by that time, Orson Welles wasn't the same as Citizen Kane Orson Welles. But what a, like, what an awesome little uh, footnote for Transformers the movie to be known as the last thing Orson Welles ever did. Um, and he's incredible. Like, it's Orson Welles. You know, it's Leonard Nimoy. It's uh, got throw the other ones at me. Uh, you got Robert even... Stack as Ultra Magnus. Oh my god, Robert Stack as Ultra Magnus, who was Elliot Ness. Like, they didn't, I, I love that they didn't, uh, like they were going for a big blockbuster movie. You're casting a big blockbuster movie in that cartoon, you know, and it wasn't even sound alike. Like, now maybe you know, you'll get somebody who sounds like Johnny Depp to do the Johnny Depp part, but like they just went for it. And they got like like a sci-fi icon to come in and play the new bad guy. Like it's so 
I feel like the people making that movie actually cared. Like, I feel like they actually wanted it to be a good movie. I feel like they actually wanted to see kind of how far they could could push the ability for a child to understand what is going on. Um, and I, like we talked about earlier, I don't think that people do that anymore. Everybody's afraid of getting canceled on Twitter. Um, and so I don't, I don't know if you'll ever see like programming that is directed only at children be that good. Although I say that and like the new Voltron on Netflix is really good. It's, it's um, stellar. <laughs> I, I try to tell I everyone what I can about it. Yeah, but I don't know. And maybe it's just because I'm old. I don't. I don't know if it has. You know what the great part about Transformers the movie is, is it does something similar to what the Voltron series does, which I haven't seen it last season, so don't. You know, I'm, I'm halfway through season seven, so I'm I'm right there with you. Okay. I'm, I'm a little further behind than you actually. Um, but, uh, and, and it's a big thing today in that everybody's like, why would I do a movie when I could do a 10 part TV show and I get 10 hours to develop these characters versus two hours, but there's something magical about the brevity and the, uh, the saturation uh, that you have to tell this character's story in two hours. Like, if you have 10 hours to tell it, it's almost easier to tell the story of Shiro or Keith or one of these characters. If you had to tell Voltron in two hours, how do you do it and keep the potency? How do you do it and make people cry when this person dies or cheer when this person succeeds? Um, and that's something that Transformers the movie does really, really well. Um, you know, I guess kids have a backdrop on who Optimus Prime is when he, when he dies, but even within the movie, you know, in the first 15 minutes, they do a very good job of introducing you to him as a leader and having him be almost a, like a God walking where they're like, you know, they're under attack. Like the only person who can save us is Optimus Prime. The only person who can save us is Optimus Prime. And they build him up in a way that even if you hadn't seen the first two seasons of Transformers, you still look at this character through the eyes of the characters you know have been introduced to in that movie as a, as a, as a demigod. They really devote time and dialogue to character development in a very potent, efficient way. They do. I do think, you know, the viewer, especially the younger viewers, were helped along with having known who the characters were from the show. I think that's what might have given them a bit more of an emotional impact. Because if you look back at, like, reviews of the movie, like, say, Siskel or Siskel and Ebert, like, they pan the film because they, they're like, I don't know what's going on at the beginning. And, um, you know, more or less, so, you know, I'm, I'm probably really paraphrasing that down a bit. Uh, but I, I mean, I think to your point, I think you're right. And that, you know, if they set it up, I don't know if they set up the emotional involvement as well by having, not having that, you know, two seasons of TV show in front of it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know though. Like, is it a product of like 
Siskel and Ebert just like being film snobs? Like, does it really need, like if I showed my nephew the movie first, I don't know if he really needs to know, you know, that Optimus Prime fought Megatron on an oil rig. Like I, I think that they, I think what, oh God, I sound ridiculous. I think it may have been a little bit ahead of its time in the way that uh, today movies drop you into a world and you're expected to catch up. I'll go back to the matrix again. Like you're dropped into this world where people can fly across buildings and they all wear weird S and M stuff. And, and as you watch the movie, you kind of get caught up with it. Right. But for the first half hour of matrix, you're like, I don't know what red pill, blue pill, what's going on? Like, you know, the character designs are so cool. You're willing to go along for the ride and your understanding of that universe kind of catches up to the movie at the same point that Neo understands the new universe. And I think that, you know, would kids scream and cry and run out of the theater when Optimus Prime dies without having seasons one and two? Probably not. Uh, but would they understand the emotional impact of him as a leader, him as somebody that was seen as uh, their only hope and he's gone and you know that Unicron is still out there? I, I think so. I, I, I mean, I can't remove the fact that I used to watch Transformers on WGN from my experience watching the movie, but I, I feel if I try to step outside of that, that a kid would understand that the Autobots are in trouble when Optimus Prime died, even if he's only in the movie for six minutes at that point. Yeah, you're, you're, wow. <laughs> Again, you, you floor me sometimes with your analysis of this stuff. Like, um, I never, you know, I didn't think of them as two separate things. And, and it's absolutely true. If you look at them as, you know, the, the emotional attachment and the context within the story, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, it's, it's, it's funny, man. I, I was saying to Seth, I was on his podcast and, uh, first thing I said, I said, I listened to that JC episode about Last Jedi, and I'm like, it changed entirely how I felt about the film after I had just seen it. Um, just being picking up on things, and just like there was one thing you said about story, and and I've been kind of plugging into my head, and I had it in my head when I was watching uh, Bumblebee was uh, the thing like uh, if you see a gun, you know it's, it's going to be it's going to show up later, um, mm -hmm. and, and something along those lines. And um, watching Bumblebee, it was there's a videotape of her diving and she used to be a diver. She is going to dive in this movie at some point. Yeah. Yeah. But they did it. Like, I, I love that in Bumblebee. I watch it with my fiance and I look, is it a little telling? Is it a little heavy handed? Yeah. But like when she's crawl climbing up that thing, like I audibly got excited. I'm like, Oh my God, she's going to die. Like I wanted to see her do it. It, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think you need to hide your cards so much. Like it was so satisfying to watch her do that um, in that movie. Like I got excited. I turned to my fiance. I'm like, oh my God. She, and I pick up on these things because I have years of screenwriting. And I turned to her and I said, uh, I turned to her and I said, oh my God, she's going to have to dive off the thing. But she's going to do it because she finally has somebody that understands her and sure enough she did 
Um, neither here nor there, but the same thing happened in, uh, oh, what was that Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hardy movie where he eats the bear liver? Oh, um, the Re- the Revenant. The Revenant. There's a scene in the Revenant where he like picks up a tree branch, right? And I looked at my fiance. And I'm like, he's going to use that tree branch to prop himself up on, to make it look like he's propped up on the horse to lure Tom Hardy out. And then he's going to fight and kill Tom Hardy. And like six minutes later, it happens. And she was pissed. because She's like, you just ruined a huge moment for me. But for me, it was so satisfying because it was almost like a puzzle I got to figure out. You know, uh, the example I use all the time is uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. At the very beginning of the movie, when Indy's teaching class, you know, archaeology is the search for truth, not whatever. If you're looking for, uh, or it's the search for fact, not truth. If you're looking for truth, Dr. So-and-so's philosophy classes down the, down the hall, right? You're showing Indiana Jones as this practical guy who doesn't believe in the boogeyman. Then his gateway, his like cantina entrance into that world is, He's at an old library, and what does he what does he have to admit? You know, three, three, seven, seven. And there's a great shot where he goes up the spiral staircase, and there's a giant X on the floor. X marks the spot. Those are those little things that, like, your hero is one step ahead of where the audience is at, and it's so satisfying for the audience when they figure out what's going on. Uh, it's just good writing. Um, it, Last Jedi, Last Jedi is devoid of that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to throw that shot. I had to throw no, the you, shot in there. You know what I liked about your? You didn't like Last Jedi, but the thing I appreciated was you didn't like it for completely different reasons than I had heard leading into the movie. And I think uh, you know it was refreshing to at least hear like a, a more critical opinion of story and and things that that could have happened or that should have happened Mm -hmm. uh versus uh people being just outraged for various reasons contrary to the popular opinion uh you can dislike last jedi without being a nazi or a misogynist (laughs) (laughs) um but to bring this back to to transformers the movie um you know talking about foreshadowing i think you know the bay films kind of lack this and uh and the bumblebee has it to a good extent and, uh, you know, when Optimus gives up the Matrix in Transformers the movie, Ultra Magnus doesn't catch it. He he misses it. Hot Rod catches it. Mm-hmm. And that's like your first real great piece of foreshadowing that uh, this is going to be important later. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they let you sit with it. Like, by the time you get to the point where Hot Rod gets his hands on the Matrix, like, you have stored that little piece of information that he catches it in the back of your head. You've waited for him to, to, to repossess the matrix and he doesn't, and he doesn't, and he doesn't. And as soon as you get to the point where he's like, you're like, Oh, he's, he's not, he's not going to do it. It was like, it was like a bait and switch. Then he, you know, grabs it off Galvatron and opens it. And then you get further satisfaction because not only does he, your hero, succeed, um, he, Hot Rod is the older brother, right? If you're Daniel, Hot Rod is your older brother, your cool older brother. And you get to watch your cool older brother succeed. And then it's a Transformers movie. You get to see him transform. 
Yeah. Wow. You figuratively and literally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, Which again, like maybe that's kind of corny as it comes out of my mouth at 38 years old, but it's, it's, it's satisfying. There's something satisfying about it even today. Absolutely. And you know, I want to, I want to pivot here just to one other thing, because I think you're kind of, um, you're an aficionado of this, uh, um, more so than I am. And, and people who listen to my show know, uh, I love heavy metal, but, uh, I, <laughs> I tend to slant towards the harder side of things. And, uh, I've never met a hair metal aficionado such as, as such as you, uh, and, uh <laughs> and, and you have the credits to back it up, right? You work, you've done stuff with Motley Crue and, and, and some other things, uh, with, with some of their tours and their videos. Am I right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, 6 a.m. But oh, so, okay. Well, Nikki six. 6 is bad. Yeah. Okay. Um, so just give me the, um, give me your, your feelings on the soundtrack. Um, first off, to pick that to put in a kid's show, like people forget now listening to hair metal because they played at the grocery store that back then they wouldn't sell Motley Crue albums at Walmart. Right. So to to pick that genre of music, which had been like, you know, vilified um, and called trash to like, hey, we're going to sell this to eight year olds. One bold choice Two, uh, the first two songs I put on the the jukebox at uh, at uh, Scum and Villainy were Dare and You Got the Touch. Because there is a small percentage of nerds who, when they hear that song, it's, it is a time machine for them. And they're whatever age they were in 1986 when that song goes crazy and Optimus Prime wrecks the Decepticon. Um, it's, I, 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 when I was in high school, like, I didn't even know that you could buy that soundtrack. And one of my friends in high school brought it to school one day. He's like, look at what I got. I didn't even go home after school. I went straight to Best Buy to buy it. Um, and it is, there was a long time when anytime I got in my car to drive, I listened to that soundtrack, Instruments of Destruction. And then when I was in college and Napster came out, I searched Napster for Lion, NRG, uh, like all of those bands to try to find other stuff that they had done. I, I mean, I still love it to this day. I still listen to it to this day. Um, and in a world now where like Sweet Child of Mine or Smoking in the Boys Room is on every radio in every supermarket in the world, like Sometimes it's nice to drop in uh, like The Hunger by Spectra General and like hear hair metal that hasn't been played to death. Yeah, uh, it's funny. I was actually just talking about this with uh, a coworker of mine. I was like, uh, on like serious radio, they have, you know, they have Hair Nation, which is the hair metal station, but like it really yeah, yeah. only focuses on either the hits of those the bands that fit that kind of genre or songs they put out around the time those songs were hits. Uh, they don't really do like, hey, Def Leppard put out, you know, two albums in the 90s. Uh, you want to play one of those songs? <laughs> you know, never, right. never anything like that. I'm like, there, there's there's a missed market there. But, uh, you know, these, you know, it's funny. Uh, you mentioned NRG. They were at a Transformers convention one year um, and they had like a, a table 
And it was kind of sad because they, they were there for like the first day. And by the middle of the first day, they just put it like nobody was showing up to talk to them. It was probably it was probably a few years too soon. Like, uh, I don't think the nostalgia had set into the music just yet. Oh, my God, I would kill. I would go there and just be like, give me all of your albums. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's it's so much fun. And, you know, it all kind of has a a kind of an aggressive, darker feel that I really think fits with the tone of the majority of that movie. When you've been listening to those songs, which are a little aggressive, not really, um, not really uppers, right? For that whole movie. And then you've got Vince DiCola, who did Rocky, uh, or did the, at least the later Rocky movies, doing the, like the, the score for the movie. Um, and even that is kind of like electronic and dark. And at the end, when you got the touch comes on as the one of two, like, I mean, you got the touches, like got to be one of the most uplifting songs ever written. And you've got from there at the beginning of the movie to when they play, you've got the touch. There is not a happy song really in that that movie um when that song comes on at the end it's like this giant relief and this giant emotional relief that uh that you need like it it, it all enhances the stuff and informs the stuff that comes before and after it yeah absolutely um you know i'm it's funny i'm probably more of a dare like dare is the track for me because it just it moves i, I agree I, me it too. pushes that that whole scene but uh um yeah i mean the touch and, and the fact that it's been reused and you know it was in boogie nights and uh and it, it got a little bit of a, a i don't know a quick nod in the bumblebee film you know it shows the um i it feels like you like you said before i feel stupid saying it sometimes but like the cultural impact of this film They've used it like they've used they used it in Glow, I think, or did they use Dare in Glow? I, I don't know offhand, but I, I did hear something. It might be Dare that was in Glow. I'd have to look it up. Um, oh, Dare is such a good song. <laughs> oh man! All right, so JC, any uh, parting words about Transformers the movie? Give me uh, if if there was someone who listens somehow listens to this podcast but has never seen this movie or has never seen it um the way you see it what would you tell them if they've never i would say when you watch the movie if you've seen it before and you don't like it go rewatch the movie and don't look at it as somebody trying to sell toys look at it as uh heroic archetypes um and at the end imagine putting world war ii generals in the same situation um, imagine Tom Hanks is Optimus Prime and uh, Tom Cruise is Ultra Magnus and uh, and you've got, oh, I don't know, uh, Zac Efron is Hot Rod, right? Does the movie change in your mind? Is it your bias against cartoons? I would venture to say yes. If you haven't seen the movie, it is the best representation of what uh of transformers at its best 
you know, uh, the original three, More Than Meets the Eye, is really good. Return of Optimus Prime is really good. There's a couple other episodes in there that are really, like, kind of clever and smart. But, like, if you had to sell Transformers in two hours to somebody and make them fall in love with it, it is Transformers the movie. Yeah, as I call it, it's the centerpiece of the Transformers franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, JC, yeah, how, JC, how can people get in touch with you if they uh, they want to come to your they want to come to your restaurant? They want to uh, uh, meet, reach out to you on social media. How how can they get in touch with you? Um, I am at Reifenberg on Twitter. Um, I am JC Reifenberg on Facebook. Um, I am. Uh, you can just come to the bar. I'm there a lot. Uh, Scum and Villainy Cantina in Hollywood, California. Let's see. Oh, I just started doing the Instagram thing that all the kids started doing 10 years ago. So if you want to see pictures of my dogs and things like that, you can find me on Instagram at JC Reifenberg. Cool. Cool. All right. So JC, thank you so much for, for being on. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. This was fun. And that just about does it for this episode of Transformers University. I really hope you liked that conversation. Uh, Going back and editing it, I forgot how much fun that conversation was because there was a bit of gap between uh, when I put this together and when we, JC and I, uh, talked. But if you like Transformers the movie, don't worry, we will be talking more about that and some other adaptations in future episodes. But next time on the show, we are switching over to the toy line. We're going to talk about the 1986 toy line and specifically about the Autobots of that year. And, of course, if you want to talk more with me on social media, please reach out to me on Twitter at TFU underscore info. That's usually where I am. You can also catch us on Facebook, facebook.com slash TFUINFO, Instagram.com slash TFUINFO, the YouTube channel. Please subscribe, YouTube.com slash TFUINFO. If you want to join our Patreon, you could have heard this episode a week ago, and uh, you could be privy to some more special Uh, events and show topics uh, and lots of stuff on there. Patreon.com slash T-F-U-I-N-F-O Finally, don't forget the website The Toy Archive, world's longest running Transforming Tour Archive www.tfu.info I am your host Anthony Brucalli, owner-operator madman behind tfu.info Till next time, see ya!